Hello, and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is cinematographer Shelley Johnson, whose credits include Jurassic Park 3, Captain America, The First Avenger, and the new Bill and Ted Face the Music. Shelley's an amazing storyteller. His anecdotes from set and the images he creates speak for themselves. And in our hour-plus conversation, we discuss a wide range of topics. From Shelley getting chosen by Steven Spielberg to shoot Jurassic Park 3 as his first studio movie, and the advice received from Spielberg's legendary cinematographer Janusz Kaminski, the complex process of creating a skinny Steve Rogers on the set of Captain America The First Avenger, the challenges of recreating an epic naval battle completely inside a dry studio for his newest movie Greyhound starring Tom Hanks, how a last-minute emergency brought Shelley aboard Keanu Reeves' new film Bill and Ted Face the Music, the spectacular sequences Shelley is designing for the upcoming Honey, I Shrunk the Kids reboot, and much more. As always, if you'd like to hear new content, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Access. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Shelly, thank you so, so much for joining us. I'm incredibly excited. Kind of concerned about the amount of projects we've got to get through, but, you know, we'll give it our, <laughs> our best. And I thought I would begin all the way back talking about, of course, Jurassic Park, because it's my understanding that at the time Jurassic 3 came around, you had been a TV cinematographer for about 15 years, and this was your big first studio movie. Yeah. And it sounds like the vote of confidence to hire you came from Steven Spielberg himself, who had seen your dailies from an ambulance show called The Others. And what also amazes me, this was also your first introduction to Joe Johnston. Yeah. So again, Jurassic 3 shot from August of 2000 to January of 2001. And despite, you know, knowing there was a lot of pressure on you, I wanted to dive into the project talking about your stage work at Universal Studios and, and this plan to fake the exteriors inside. This concept sounds like it was introduced from a conversation you had with cinematographer Alan Davia, who was a friend and a mentor. And for people listening, he shot E.T. and Empire of the Sun, among many others. He screens Congo for you, which, by the way, had a lot of interiors for the exteriors. And what struck me about watching the movie the other night the challenge for you was matching that inside stage work with the exterior location in hawaii because sometimes you're intercutting that back to back which for a cinematographer must be a nightmare yeah so how did your tech scout in hawaii inform the way you were going to approach the lighting on stage 12 the largest one at universal by the way and how did your plan for approaching the movie change from the way you thought you were gonna shoot this to the way you ultimately did our plan was to, always was, kind of the edict before I even came on, was to shoot a lot of these day exterior jungle sets on stage. Mainly because they had the, their big dinosaur, the big Stan Winston Spinosaurus, couldn't leave the Universal lot. He was very big. They certainly couldn't travel him to Hawaii, and they didn't even want him off the studio lot. They wanted to keep him close to them. So that required a lot of our 
work to be done on stage. I mean, when I first got the movie, as you said, kind of through Stephen and, and all that, through a television project I did, he recommended me to Joe, who was looking. And I was really happy to meet Joe. I w- I've been a fan of his, and the, the movie he had done just prior to this was October Sky. And if you haven't seen October Sky, that's a, a wonderful film. It's not a huge film. It's about these kids who enter a science fair because they're going to be their way out of this coal town that they're in. And they do that by building rockets. That, that movie was just marvelously shot. And I, looking at Joe's career, I noticed, okay, wow, there really hasn't been a lot of repeat business from DPs. He sort of has had a different DP on every movie. I think one guy worked for him twice, but other than that, he kept kind of looking for new DPs. So that told me that he was likely in the market for a collaborator. (laughs) And Stephen seemed to think so. And to hear Joe tell the story, he said he had nothing to lose. You know, if I were to fall on my face in front of all these famous people, it wasn't going to be his fault. And if I was indeed as good as Stephen portrayed me to be, then all the much better for him. You know, he didn't care. So he, he was on board. But, and he's, he was he was delightful to get to know and get to know his, his vocabulary. And, you know, one of the things that he said to me was, you know, we're going to be going on stage We definitely want to shoot some of these day interiors on stage. He says, here's what I want you to realize. When we do that, I'm going to be limited to what I can do on stage. I'm going to be looking at a long list of limitations. So I want all the benefits of being able to be on stage. In other words, I want to be able to shoot this way and then shoot that way and then shoot this way and then shoot that way and not have to sit there and watch you light. You can hang your lights wherever you want, but just know I'm going to be looking for, for flexibility. We're going to be cheating angles. We'll be going one close-up on this end of the stage, and we're all going to trundle down the other end of the stage and do the reverse close-up to get all the depth, you know, double the depth of the stage and all that. So he said, just know we're going to do that and have a plan. So I thought, okay, yeah, fair enough. I thought that was a fair enough ask. I still didn't really know how I was going to do it. And then as you said, what really helped was to go to Hawaii to do a tech scout. And so... I brought my color temperature meter and I brought my light meters with me and I decided, okay, I'm just going to get really get to know the light in Hawaii. Everywhere we go, I'm just going to create kind of a log of all of these measurements that I get in Hawaii. So when I thought about daylight, I thought, okay, there's essentially two components in daylight. There's kind of a cooler indirect soft skylight and there's the direct hard sunlight. So in terms of intensity and color, I'm kind of measuring those two things. So I kind of went into, we were in our practical jungles in in Hawaii, and I'm measuring, you know, just how cool is the skylight and what is the difference between these two? And there actually was not a huge difference between the skylight and the uh, direct sunlight in Hawaii. The sunlight's very blue and the skylight is, I guess, normal. There was only like three or 4,000 degrees difference between that blue skylight and the direct sunlight. There was like a two-stop difference, two or three-stop difference, something like that. So that told me, okay, if I basically set up this stage with that same contrast range and I separate the color temperatures by whatever it was, 3,000 degrees, I should be able to have that same contrast ratio and that same color contrast between the skylight and the direct sunlight. So I kind of went about approaching it that way. And then along came this phone call from Alan. And Alan had worked with Joe and and also Stephen. And it was definitely in the wind that I was doing this. And as a way of kind of protecting me and helping me, he said exactly what you said. You're going to come over to my house. We're going to look at Congo. Because he said, we did a few day exteriors on stage. Not not as much as what you're going to do, but I can show you. And he was very frank. He said, I'll sit and watch the whole movie. I'll point to those scenes where they are. And I'll tell you what I feel works. I'm going to tell you what I feel did not work. I thought, oh, wow, how wonderfully candid (laughs) 
that was. And he did. He put it up and he was so honest with himself in terms of, you know, I should have gone hotter with the sunlight here. And then he'd point to little things like, see where that direct sunlight is coming through the banana leaf back there? That's exactly right. <laughs> you know? I wish the whole scene looked like that. <laughs> you know, but you would point to those types of things. And he's so wonderful and helpful. And I must have sat there for three hours talking to him. And what was great about it was not only the technical side of it, but into the conversation crept his reasons why, you know, his storytelling goals, because we were sitting down to watch the whole movie. So he told me about his whole process in breaking down the movie and designing the look of the movie and what all of these different lighting scenarios were supposed to mean, which really got me thinking. One thing that Hawaii told me was I was going to be held to somewhat of a natural type of tone. I couldn't really go off into an expressive unknown, an impressionistic you know, type of version, which I actually would have loved to have done, you know, but because as you were saying, the, the original idea was to not intercut anything we did on stage with Hawaii. We were going to surgically separate the scenes so that we weren't facing that. But then of course, editing comes along and we're cutting one angle on stage, this angle in Hawaii, this close up here on stage, that wide shot in Hawaii. I mean, it's just it, almost every scene is intercut with stage work and, and location work. That's where I was having to kind of really think about these measurements that I took, make the picture look natural. And once I start on that natural kind of base, how can I make that expressionistic, if that makes sense? What are they doing? They're setting up a perimeter to make the place safe. These guys are good. Trust me, on this island, there is no such thing as safe. We have to get back on that plane. Will you tell your wife to stop making that noise? That is a very, very bad idea. Amanda, honey, Dr. Grant said that's a bad idea. What? He says it's a bad idea. What's a bad idea? What was that? That's a Tyrannosaurus. I don't think so. It sounds bigger. You know, speaking about the work on stage 12, I think it's worth mentioning that Jurassic 3 was the first film in the series where the technology had finally reached the point where industrial light and magic could blend the techniques of having in the same frame, you're having both practical puppets as well as the digital ones. Right. Credit goes to, to Stan Winston's studio for creating these, as you said, these full scale animatronics. I'd be remiss not to ask you about, you know, the late Stan Winston, whose work on this film and so many others, people should definitely look him up. But on the other side, I think your cinematography is, is often what's selling the life and, and the danger of these creatures. There's so many creepy shots with the dinosaur just cocks his head and looks at camera. <laughs> what were your conversations with Stan and, and obviously with Joe Johnston in regards to photograph these dinosaurs in a way that provided, you know, this sense of scale, danger and emotion? It's in, well, working with Stan was fantastic. He, for one thing, was very enthusiastic, I think, to work on every film he worked on. And he, he, he really loved working on these Jurassic movies because he was sort of the star in a way. His creatures were kind of the centerpiece of the movie and he wanted them to really live. And so he would tell me, I have these maquettes, these small sculptures that have the finished paint job on them and, you know, the eyes and everything. He showed me like these shelves of eyes that he had and the eyes were so important to him. And so he showed me these maquettes and he said, light them, play with them, do what you want, put them in different lighting scenarios 
scenarios. And they were small. They were like, what were they? One-tenth scale or something like that. What he was stating was a faithful rendition of the final look of the creature in terms of the, the gloss of it and all that. So I put them in different lighting scenarios, kind of including my ratios I had for stage 12 and, and all that and the, the colors and everything we were going to do. And something really funny came about where I was in the middle of kind of thinking about all this and Stan kind of had me all thinking about all his silicones and his paints and things like that that he's putting on these creatures. And so I was able to talk to Janusz Kaminski, who had shot the second one, the one right before me, he shot that. And he was working with Steven at the time. So I was able to connect to him. I got him on the phone and I was asking him, hey, okay, look, I'm, I've been over at stands and I'm looking at these maquettes and I wanted to ask if you faced anything with these dinosaurs in terms of reflections or color rendition or is there anything I should know? And about mid-sentence, he said... Okay, stop, 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 stop talking. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, what? He goes, you don't have to worry about any of that. Stan is the best in the business. You know, you're not going to teach or tell Stan anything. <laughs> Everyone in every department that you're going to be working with is the best in the business, the best special effects, the best visual effects, you know, the best sound people. They're all there to do their jobs expertly. He said, your job is to give them a world they can live in. And I thought, okay, <laughs> this is some really good advice. So at that moment, I dropped everything I was worrying about in terms of the dinosaurs and just trusted that Stan was going to give me something amazing, which he did, and started thinking about the world. I would sit for an hour every day with Joe. The, you know, these preps on these big movies are really difficult on, on directors. They get pulled in a thousand different directions. And so we had kind of a standing one hour every day that we could turn the script. And I would come prepared with some questions about a scene or a sequence or something like that. And we were talking about the interior jungle set. And he said, you know, I have a piece of reference that I want to show you. And it's a graphite drawing by a paleo artist named Doug Henderson. And this, it was this... Uh, amazing image of this kind of crocodile creature kind of sitting there in the mud and there's kind of this old decaying log suspended over his head heaved up on a couple of hills on the banks of this little mud puddle he was in you know and then beyond there was kind of this atmospheric filtered sunlight kind of shafting in through trees and you can kind of sketch in the jungle beyond but it was all kind of through these shafts of uh, atmosphere and things and the and this crocodile was almost kind of silhouette not quite you could still see detail, but almost. He said, this is the one image I was able to find that, that conveys kind of what I want the stage set to, to feel like. You know, obviously it's graphite. There's no color in it. <laughs> so you, you know, think about that. <laughs> but he said, in terms of the feel of it, and when you look at this image, this is, this is the single image that I found that is the, the most accurate. So he gave me one image which I thought was fantastic. And so that kind of got me thinking about all the components I need to create this now because this was the world, this kind of decaying, old growth, rotting <laughs> forest, you know, it's ever evolving. You know, the old stuff is kind of decaying away, the new stuff is coming up and it's all, it just keeps turning. I remember Alan gave me some advice on Congo. He had some atmosphere in there and he was creating shafts and whatnot. And, and uh, he said, that looks like smoke, doesn't it? I said, yeah, it looks like you had atmosphere smoke in there. He goes, it's not smoke. It's high pressure water. It's mist. It's, it's, it's 1,200 pound PSI. They had these emitters up with my lights and they could turn on these things at different channels at different pressures and create exactly the depth that I wanted. And it held. The whole stage didn't just fill up. It just kind of went straight down below where it was emitting. And so you could really control the depth as to how it, how it all receded into frame. So I had those installed into the <laughs> under all my lighting and all that. And, and you can see right now I had all these cinematographers helping me 
giving me advice on on what to do because it was a a big chance and a big high profile and pressure filled situation. And I really wanted to do well and I wanted to think about it properly. And here I was so happy that all of these wonderful cinematographers had stepped up to to help me. And that's that's sort of what happens in the cinematography world. We, We definitely help each other like that. But I'm glad you talked about atmosphere, you know, because I think if you want to get specific, if there's one sequence that definitely comes to mind in regards to that is the aviary attack with the pteranodons, because that's a sequence where you got to stick to your storyboards. You know, you're, you're shooting across three large sound stages. You got to move to a blue screen for shooting some of the stunts. And then you have a massive outdoor water set, which was built by Falls Lake, which by the way, for anyone listening, is a permanent lake on the Universal Backlot. And all of these weeks of shooting are feeding into one big set piece. And we'll talk about Greyhound later, but through the research, I began to recognize a pattern of you pitching the production, lighting pipeline that will in the long run save them a lot of creative headaches. What were the biggest advantages of working on a set as large as Falls Lake, which included, by the way, I'm sure you're going to talk about it, convincing the studio to drop, you know, a half a million dollars to build what was at the time the single largest scaffold rig ever assembled for this amazing night for day plan. Yeah, well, the lighting was actually kind of simple, really. In the script, the aviary was kind of shrouded in this fog. In fact, so much so that they didn't really know they were in an aviary until traces of the fog started to clear and they could see kind of a cage structure over them and they realized, oh my God, they're actually trapped inside this giant cage, which kind of spans this canyon and goes downward. And and so they're surmising, you know, there's some pretty big creatures that are living in this (laughs) giant cage. Oh my God. What is it? It's a birdcage. For what? So eventually one kind of comes out and grabs the boy by his talons and carries him off to the nest to feed the babies. (laughs) To feed the boy to the babies. The parents are running along the side of the canyon trying to catch up. So the whole thing is a pursuit following these pteranodons and they eventually, they're going down. They start at the top of the canyon, they enter kind of this structure at the top of the canyon and they wind up at the bottom. So when you think about a canyon, my plan was, okay, let's have a little bit of sunlight up at the very top. So we had some of the set pieces were on stage and I had some direct light kind of hitting the hillside over their heads um, that you can kind of see through the fog, but not really lighting the scene per se, but there to kind of indicate, okay, they're near the top of this cloud that they're in and there's sun filtering in. As they went down, 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 of course, the light just kind of comes from the slot canyon, the sky, the top light. It had to feel consistent through this whole thing. This particular sequence was our most complex in that we shot it on four different stages and this uh, this big standing set up at Falls Lake and all of it needed to have the same type of light. And each one of these different sets on these stages indicated a different portion of this canyon they were in. One had the nests and uh, different catwalk areas. One had some water at the bottom of it where they fell in. So some of our water was on stage. Some of our water was on location. Some of it was in our scaffold set out at Falls Lake and some was in Hawaii. So it, it was it was all, again, kind of another big mishmash. So I had to kind of take care of this lighting. So yeah, in that sense, and kind of like Greyhound, you, you kind of conceive of what the light should be. So following Yanush's advice, create a world. That world had this indirect light, this top light source, 
you know, which is really not that tough to create. You know, on stage, it, it manifested itself in just with soft boxes and easy to kind of keep that direction going. And this whole stage, it is a big negative fill, so it's easy to kind of create your shadows on stage. Where it becomes a little trickier is when you when you get outdoors and you need to maintain that same light direction. And as you said, you know, Falls Lake, which is a big giant kind of concrete lake at the top of Universal Lot, it did have a permanent wall which they painted green. It was like their permanent green screen because everything they did on Falls Lake was some kind of process, <laughs> you know, some the Apollo 13 capsule landing or something. And so the green screen was there. So Ed Vero, our designer, used that green screen to attach all these cliffs. So this sequence actually had no green screen in it except for a couple of the flying shots, but everything else was all practical. And then the CG dinosaurs were kind of just put into that photography. And then in many cases, our uh, sets were extended, but there wasn't a lot of green screen comps per se. So all the light had to kind of be there. When you think about Falls Lake and what's up there, that standing set, well, that in the old school of studio construction, they favored all their back lots and all their green screens, things like that, to favor a south face because that's where you have that direct light. So whenever you walk onto an old back lot, most of them are laid out to photograph well with the sun coming from the south, front lighting, <laughs> which is sort of the way all the old Technicolor films and all that. That's the way you were supposed to kind of shoot Technicolor to help protect it and get the colors working and all that. And of course, these days, all us DPs want to do the opposite. You know, we want to look, <laughs> we want to look south, so that we can, so we can get you know, our backlight and get our edge light going, which is something they didn't do very often in the old days. So now here I am needing to do this indirect light, and I've got this smack front lit cliff face that's huge. It's a couple hundred feet by hundred feet. This whole set area that we're supposed to be in. So it's not a small area. It's bigger than stage 12. It's a giant area. Kind of too big to really silk off with cranes. We came up with all kinds of ideas on how to do it. Different things and multiple silks that could be suspended and, and nothing was really working. Wind was a thing because this falls like it's up on kind of halfway up this mountain. So it's a very windy spot. So we were constantly getting foiled by wind. Finally, our key grip had an idea to build this scaffold structure, which essentially it was almost like building a building, a temporary building more or less, where we we built walls out of scaffold and then instead of making a solid roof we made a silk roof and we kind of did it in strips of silk that had spaces in between them so that the air would get relieved as it kind of blew through it you know no no air would get trapped in it no air would be trapped outside it it would all just kind of breathe you know we had engineers who had to do wind calculations and structural calculations and all this i mean this stuff is all engineered it's crazy but we had a plan and it was going to work and it and it followed the light logic all the way down that's what i liked about it the problem was the cost. One of my favorite producers is Larry Franco was doing this film and Larry had been considering this idea for about a month and we had had just meeting after meeting about this thing and you know everything that it could do and he was very slow to pull the trigger on it because it was expensive. And let's face it, this is kind of my first big break. I wasn't exactly a, I wasn't reliable yet. You know, I'd done a few good things, but you know, I wasn't like the guy you would go to to do this. <laughs> You know, so this is an idea that I had. They would look at me and I could tell they were only maybe 75% sure I knew what I was doing. <laughs> In other words, there was a chance that this whole thing could go up and it may not work. But we did our due diligence. We did our research on how to construct it. And finally, one day, Larry called me into his office and said, OK, I need to make a decision on this thing today. Run this whole thing past me one more time exactly what you're going to do, why you're doing it, and what it all is. And so I described the whole thing with the stage and the thing and the silk on the top and the sun, you know, the, our front lit sun gets filtered through the silk and becomes a top light and all that. And I threw in one other thing, which I hadn't really discussed before or even thought about much before. But I said, when you think about it, we're going to have a big silk up there. And we're shooting this in, I think it was November. So the days are very short. So what I was planning was daylight dependent. So when we ran out of light, it was over. 
anything you did on False Lake was going to be daylight dependent. So what I told him was, with this design, I can get a couple of muscolites and I can get some 18Ks and put them on top of the structure and shine them down. And when it, once it turns dark, we can keep shooting. So instead of having now like eight hours of shootable light, you can have your full 12-hour day. So I said, in, instead of being on this set for eight days, you can be on it for five or six days. And he said, okay, if you're telling me <laughs> that if I build this, I can save two days of shooting, I'll sign that check right now. <laughs> I said, yeah, I can. In theory, I can do that. He goes, okay, great. It's approved. Go. And I needed to start right away because it took a long time to get going. And I told them going in, especially our, our assistant director, I was saying, you know, can you please schedule for our night shooting tighter things, not the wide shots. Let's do the wide shots at, during the day, but I can do like half the set or so. Let's, you know, give me a chance to really see how this works and all that. The first day we shot on the set, we were going to start wide, but something wasn't ready, a stunt rig or something wasn't ready. So we started, we spent all day shooting these tighter shots, tighter shots. By the time it turned night, okay, the stunt rig is ready. Great, perfect. Yeah, so we have our, our widest shot that we're doing now. It's, it's pitch black. And so we see the entire set and it's all lit artificially. And it's a shot where the Torontoan comes down and picks up uh, Alessandro Nivola and kind of drops him back in the water and dies back. It's that shot. That's, that's the first kind of big wide shot we did in that. And that's at night. So that's where it was proven that we could do this. And I still got to kind of keep the world intact. So you can now move from stage to stage to stage to stage to location to thing and all that. And, and, and that light logic follows. All right, so why me? He said we needed someone who'd been on the island before. Yes, but I did not tell you to kidnap somebody. I have never been on this island. Sure you have. You wrote that book. That was Isla Nublar. This is Isla Sorna. Site B. You mean there are two islands with dinosaurs? All you know right, what? you Please. stay out All of right, this. All right, so how long have they been missing? Eight weeks. Almost eight weeks now. Billy, we go back to the plane, salvage what we can, and we make for the coast. Dr. Grant, we're not leaving this island without our son. Then you can go and look for him. Or you can stick with us as long as you don't hold us up. Either way, you probably won't get off this island alive. Just out of personal curiosity, the engine laboratory, the abandoned one they enter, used to be behind, do you know the War, uh, War of the Worlds set? Yeah. Rumor has it, it was an old set from the Lost World uh, that they repurposed. Yeah, yeah, it was a Lost World set. So they shot it in that place, and I think it's sort of up there by the Bates Motel, a little above that. But yeah, that, that set is where they shot Lost World on that spot. And so we just kind of reclaimed that set and had them walk through it. So it's because they were on the same island as they were in Lost World. So they could actually revisit some of that stuff. Janusz had to do most of that at night. Most of what he did there was at night and mine was during the day. So my last question about Jurassic, you know, next month marks 20 years since you began shooting the film. And as I watched the nighttime Spinosaurus attack, which by the way, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the same set, it's Falls Lake, you used it twice in the movie. I thought to myself, you know, how rare is it in today's age, which I think we're kind of seeing with the, with the new movies, they would never build a full-scale dinosaur and plop him in a river. You know, they just CG the whole thing. And I think what's amazing, and you have talked about it, the interaction, of the animatronic with the environment is the reason the sequence stands the test of time. Yeah. About it, you have this to say, quote, 
Water and fire are the two elements on a set that give away scale. With the presence of both in this sequence, you could really see how big Stan's creature really was, close quote. So this was going to be one way or another, the final set piece of the movie, at least on that scale. I know that you set up cranes not knowing whether, and Stan talked about it, once we drop him in the water, the puppet may work for days or it may break down after 10 minutes. Yeah. So we don't know what's going to happen. So I was wondering how did you maximize your time and resources to make sure that what you captured was going to be one way or another the most spectacular version of the sequence? And did you really have a plan B if, if the dinosaur was going to break down? Yeah, the well, yeah, he did warn us and he really wanted to do this. We, it's the last thing we did with the Spinosaurus because if he was going to go down, he was going <laughs> to... He probably wasn't going to come back because we shot him out otherwise and then we moved him up there. And Stan really was dying to do it. He he wanted to succeed very bad. So we, in terms of how we were treating it, it was, we shot obviously with, I think we had four cameras. So we had extra operators and extra crews that night. Of course, we're all in the water. We're all in waders and everything's wet and it's raining and it's on fire and all that. And you're right. This fire and water thing is a real thing. If you ever shoot any kind of model and you set it on fire, you see right away it's a miniature. The, the, the flames are a set scale. There aren't too many ways you can lower the scale of a flame, you know, and, and the same with water. You know, if you put a miniature ship on the water, it, it has to be a rather large miniature for it to sell at all. And yeah, like you were saying here, we had both. And he was supposed to be in the water and they were kind of in this little shark cage type thing. And he was thrashing around with his snout and trying to get at them. So he was interacting with the water. His head was kind of half into the water. And that's the part that Stan told us that's where if something's going to go wrong is when he sticks his head in the water, you know. And he said, it's probably more like the 10-minute mark. And he said, I, I, I think you're being optimistic for multiple days. It's more like the 10-minute thing is going to be more realistic. They didn't know what he was going to do. So we got in there and started shooting with him. And we were all rolling and the cameras, you know, he was in there thrashing around. And he lasted all day. We got all kinds of great shots with him. And we went to Daly's the next day with Stan. He, Stan was just over the moon at Daly's. He was, he, oh my God, these are the best Daly's I've ever been a part of. Not because of the look of them, but because his dinosaur was in the water. He said, do you guys have any idea how difficult this is? <laughs> you know, how impossible this is. And I don't think he ever broke down. He, he went into the next day and the next day. There might have been parts of him that kind of froze up, an eye or a little an arm or something. But he kind of kept going. Plan B was just to throw a tarp over him and <laughs> CG, you know, because we couldn't even move him out, you know, because he sat on these kind of big, you know, I-beam tracks. So they probably could have gotten him out of there in a day. But if we had, if he went down that night, we were just, okay, throw a tarp over him and let's keep going. And we're just going to add him in later. That was plan B. <laughs> we'll talk about operating with Greyhound later, but you have these like amazing push-ins on character in regards to treating the camera movement in a, in a way that directly correlates to emotion, why do you think it's so effective for audience members? I mean, the idea is that you want to go with the moment. This is something that Joe really did well. And he was kind of almost a teacher in this respect. For him, that type of movement was extremely important and it was all part of the discovery of it all. And he told me, if we ever lay dolly track, if you can, make it a dance floor. Because he said, I always want to be able to move back a little further, move in a little further, left or right. Give me options. Don't just do two marks because chances are uh, that's not going to be enough. Give me extra where you can. And then what would happen is as we're shooting, he would say, okay, instead of moving in on this word, move in on this word on the next take. And, and then he'd do a variation like that. Then he'd go okay, a little faster on that word. And he'd kind of 
be massaging the scene as he's discovering, you know, what the actors are doing, because now there's a whole new interpolation of the scene when you get the actors involved. So he's completely responding to what he's seeing on the monitor. And that's his process. One of the things I did on Jurassic was I introduced him to the Technocrane, and he hadn't really used it a lot. And my intention was to shoot as much as I could off that crane for the whole movie, mainly starting with stage 12, because stage 12 was very uneven. It was almost like working on location. If you're going to lay dolly track, you had to kind of, you were leveling it over rocks and plaster, you know, all the stuff that Ed put in there that didn't come out all that easily. You know, so you, you had to kind of treat it almost like a location. So I thought, okay, if we can get a technocrane to kind of fly over a lot of that stuff, that'd be great. And it would give him a lot of these options. And the problem was the technocrane that we had, something was triggering it off. And so we were having trouble. Joe was becoming more and more frustrated with the technocrane because it had some kind of issue to the point where he, he said, okay, let's, let's get this thing out of here. Shelly, lay a piece of track. <laughs> there's one, there's two. Let's just do this on track. Let's stop playing around with this thing. So I told the technocrane tech, I said, okay, Joe's upset with this piece of equipment. Let's figure out, find a dark corner, hide this thing and figure out what's wrong with it because I, I'm, I'm probably going to have one chance to try to bring it back. <laughs> and, then, and then he's going to probably really not want any part of it anymore. So I said, you know, really figure out what's going on and let's talk at the end of the day. So he found the problem with it. And at the end of the day, he assured me it was going to work. So the next morning I came to Joe and said, okay, you know, I know that <laughs> you know, the, the devil's crane upsets you. <laughs> but I said, I'm convinced it's the right thing to use. And I said, can we do this? Can we just start the morning with it? So the first time that thing shuts off, I'll be the first one to push it out the door and never look at it again. But I said, I think if it works properly, you'll see that it has a lot of what you need. It has so many of the options that you want because it can go in a little more. It can go left and right and it can do all the things you want when it's working. And he thinks he found the problem. So he said, OK, yeah, let's, let's give it a shot. And it, and it worked flawlessly for the whole rest of the show. It was great. And he fell in love with it because it can do those small little things. And, and when you work with Joe, you're on for the takes. He's giving a lot of notes between takes and he doesn't do an enormous amount of takes, but he, he really wants what he wants. So it's about very quickly kind of translating what he's asking for into something the grips can understand, the camera operators can understand to get that moment, to get that screen moment. He's trying to capture a screen moment, you know, that's happening with the characters. And, and he wants he wants it to go with an eye movement or a breath or just the thought of them thinking about what they just said or what they were about to say. He, he loves to go on those types of beats. So it's a very personal thing. And that's what you have to kind of key into with these directors about when it comes to movement like that. Obviously, you must have done something right. You were mentioning that you hadn't really paired with a specific DP. And from Jurassic 3, you have a successful string of movies. Again, for listeners, Hidalgo 2004, Wolfman 2010, Captain America, The First Avenger 2011, which I'll ask you about. And even the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids reboot, which hopefully you'll begin shooting soon. Hopefully, yeah. Allow me to ask you then just a couple questions about Captain America. This is the fifth movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe at the time, and you described it this way, quote, the film was long and involved and it became larger than life in its production scale. We had 115 sets in total to light 
and the ability of pre-lighting four or five sets in advance allowed us to stay ahead of the schedule and free our minds of the technical demands to stay immersed in the creative contributions of any given shot." Close quote. So I wonder, when working on a project with a schedule as extensive as this one, if you could talk about how you manage your time with your gaffer to pre-light sets when you're working five, six, gosh, seven day weeks maybe, to make sure that you're not burning out your crew's energy as well as your own. To me, something that I can do to help with that is to be the source of energy. Like the way Alan impressed me by explaining his reasons why and how Janusz impressed me with his incredible focus on what to prioritize. That's something I can also translate and communicate with the crew. So in the case of the gaffer, it, we shot Captain America and Wolfman in the UK, and I had basically the same crew for both of those movies. It was wonderful, and the gaffer was a guy named John Higgins. When we're prepping, he shares an office with me. I might be spitballing ideas about this or that, going through the script, and just any idea that stream of consciousness that happens to come my way, he can start working on. You know, in the case of uh, Captain America, you know, that blue cube. This is at a time where there weren't a lot of LED lights available and, and so he had to kind of make that cube and it was water cooled and had all this, you know, all kinds of issues with it. But, but things like that he can do. And because he was there for really most of my prep, he had a very long prep, he could appreciate the scale of it all and kind of knew what he needed to do to stay ahead of this. And he saw right away, oh, wow, it's possible that we can have six sets up at once between two that we're pre-rigging, two that we're shooting, one that's on hold. So in other words, we may have to pre-light a set that we're not going to be on for another two weeks just because that's the only place it'll slot in the schedule because we have a, a string of smaller sets that we're only on for a couple of days. In the case of Captain America, when you have 115 sets and a similar amount of shooting days, of course, you might rig them for a week but shoot on them for a day. And they're rather large setups. And these setups require pre-focusing. So what happens in England, which is a really great way to work in England, is you work continuous days. So it's basically what they call French hours, I guess, in some areas. But you don't break for lunch. You start at 8 and you wrap at 6. Don't break for lunch. You just work straight 10 hours. And then what happens with those other two hours, if you need them, you can do a pre-focus. You know, I can work at the lab. The director can go work with the editor if he wants. And so, and of course, everyone's being paid accordingly and all that. But it, at least you have time. If I have to go to a big set and, and focus 100 lights, well, that's going to take a couple hours. <laughs> I have to build that into the day somewhere where it's not at the end of a 14-hour day or whatever like that. So that's part of one way how you can kind of keep the stamina going. On a movie like that, there's creative energy that the DP can draw upon. Yes, you get tired, but you kind of find the strength to do it because you're doing something that's pretty great. Where the pressure comes in on a thing like a Marvel movie, there's kind of two things you have to think about. One is they really expect excellence. They spend a lot of money. They want things at a very excellent scale. So there's not much that impresses them. You don't get a lot of accolades. You kind of, yeah, okay, yeah, you did a blizzard on stage. Yeah, good. Good. <laughs> so we don't have to go to Iceland then. Okay, great. Let's move on. <laughs> you know, and, and the other thing is, I think a DP and a director really too, has to keep from getting sucked in to the whole special effectiveness of it all, the whole visual effectiveness, you know, the, the virtual aspect of it, the kind of fake storytelling. You want to be able to treat the set and have the set run almost like a typical narrative set. It has to be a creative place. You know, in fact, one of the things that I learned on Jurassic, whenever I was near the camera, nobody would bother me about things like plans for an upcoming scene that we had to pre-light or whatever like that, or questions about things we weren't working on. 
And so I decided to tell everybody, imagine a 12-foot circle around the camera. If I'm in that 12-foot circle, no one's allowed to come in and talk to me about anything that's not involving this shot. If I leave the circle, <laughs> come at me <laughs> with, with everything. But at some point, I'm going to have to concentrate on the shot, what I'm actually doing. And in a creative way, I have to get in that space and I have to get in that mindset. I can't just not do it. And interestingly, what started happening is you saw Joe's chair invisibly come closer and closer to the 12-foot circle. <laughs> until he was inside the circle because, of course, the rule was all we do in the circle is talk about the shot. And I don't even think he knew he was doing it. He didn't know the rule really existed, but I think he found peace in the 12-foot circle. <laughs> but that's one thing is that you kind of give yourself a method that you can get into that creative headspace because just like a dramatic film, you have to sort of feel your way through it. You know, so much of the shot works because it feels right. It's not because it's hitting marks or hitting a certain timing or it's at a certain tilt angle and everything else that you have to pay attention to when you do these effects films. The shot has to feel like what it is, you know, like it's what it's supposed to be. And it has to be real and it has to have flaws and it has to have a life and a breath to it. That's important to always keep attuned. You mentioned visual effects, but for the first 37 minutes of the movie, pre-evolution, Steve Rogers is presented as a rather skinny character. And again, it's amazing visual effects work. I know you guys were doing multiple passes sometimes of the same shot with a body double, then maybe Chris Evans, maybe a clean plate or a green screen. How did that alter your process of shooting? Because suddenly for one shot, right. must be taking a long time. You did. And in fact, we were prepping. You know, we would shoot an occasional test of the skinny Steve. The visual effects hadn't really worked out how to do it. We shot two or three of them, but didn't see the results of any of them. <laughs> Occasionally we'd ask, hey, whatever happened to that test? Are we going to see any skinny Steve? You know, what is our process exactly? Because we were trying all kinds of different techniques. It turns out that they kind of came clean right before we started shooting and said, okay, we don't really know how to do it yet. It's like, okay. So I said, so you have to shoot, like you're saying, every conceivable kind of play because there's probably three or four different ways that this is going to work and different methods are going to apply to different shots depending on what it is. So the first stuff we shot with him, we were doing multiple passes and every probably five or six passes per shot. And Joe, on the visual effects shots, he still wants the movement in there. He doesn't want to dumb the shot down unless it's really something totally irresponsible, but he wants the shot to be just like every other shot in the movie. So, and he expects visual effects to just deal with it, you know? So if it's a dolly move, he wants the operator on it. It's not a lock-off. We don't, we don't do lock-offs with Joe. They have to figure out how they're going to do it. So when you're doing these multiple passes now, it's a it's an issue. And it got to the point where we got to the second day of doing it, and I think that Joe and I finally had to tell them and say, look... <laughs> We, we can't do a whole movie like this because every skinny Steve shot is taking two hours. You know, it's like, we, we'll never make it. So you guys have to make a commitment here to some kind of method, you know, that, that'll work. And then it got to the point where what we do is Chris would always do the first performance because I think their goal would be to shoot with Chris and shrink him down if that was at all possible. Chris's performance was very important and Joe wanted Chris to do it and Chris wanted Chris to do it. <laughs> and he had a wonderful body double what well, body double it was the skinny steve version body double who watched him beautifully so chris would do his takes and then this guy would do his version and i mean exactly the way chris did it you know it was very important that chris go first because chris was the character and then we would usually just shoot a clean plate after that and that was it that's what it came to and then they were either able to shrink chris down or replace chris's head on the guy's name is Leander. Leander's uh, body or some whatever hybrid of the two, they could do it. But mainly it's because the body double was so good and because Chris's performance was so on point. I thought that his insistence on really being part of that was part of what made that whole thing so successful. And I think it put the visual effects people in the right frame of mind said, this is not a visual effects shot. This is a shot of an actor. 
that has a visual effect in it. You know, they aren't setting the table here. They're following what the actor is doing. And that's, that's the priority. So, you want to go overseas, kill some Nazis. Five exams in five different cities. That might not be the right file. No, it's not the exams I'm interested in. It's the five tries. But you didn't answer my question. Do you want to kill Nazis? Is this a test? Yes. I don't want to kill anyone. I don't like bullies. I don't care where they're from. Well, there are already so many big men fighting this war. Maybe what we need now is a little guy. Let's talk about Greyhound. First off, congratulations on the movie. Thank you. I absolutely loved it. The film is directed by your fellow ASC member, Aaron Schneider, and the story takes place in 1942, which is early World War II, and follows a first-time U.S. Navy captain played by Tom Hanks, who also wrote the screenplay, by the way. And the captain, you know, with no air cover protection, must lead an allied convoy of ships through the Atlantic while being hunted by a wolf pack of Nazi U-boats. I wanted to ask you first about the subjective nature of the story and how that impacted the production choice. At the beginning of our conversation, we talked about structuring the camera and lighting pipeline. You shoot the film in 35 days and so much of the story takes place in the pilot house. And what amazed me in that for an entire water-based movie, most of it is shot in studio, but you're not even in a tank and there's so much water. So what gave you the confidence that shooting the film on a stage was a decision that not only you could pull off, but that wasn't gonna bite you in the but the moment you stepped into post-production. To me, the stage was the right thing to do, largely because we were never going to go to sea. We shot a lot of plates on the ocean. There was a, a unit that went out and prepped into the North Atlantic with the Canadian Navy to shoot every kind of wave and ocean skyscapes, kind of things that were somewhat generic, but it could be used, but I, but I mean lots of it. A lot of the feeling for what the film was going to be was was in those plates. Kind of like Jurassic, a big part of my job was to author the look of the film as usual, as though we were on the ocean. So even though I'm only shooting the foregrounds, anything beyond that rail on the stage is a visual effect. You know, when we were on this ship, the actual ship that was uh, in Baton Rouge, that's moored on the Mississippi River. Beyond those rails is... Baton Rouge. (laughs) There's a little bit of water there, but it's the Mississippi River. It's not the North Atlantic. So my job was to conceive of what the light would be like for the foreground. So my foreground is designed to extend into a very specific type of background. So to make that all clear, I wrote a very long document and just went scene by scene on exactly what each scene was going to look like. And I had thought about things like, you know, the color of the ocean, the color of the sky, the visibility of the horizon, how much atmosphere was in the air, how bright was the sky, how bright was the exterior compared to the interior, how much of the exterior lighting was influencing the interior. At one point, did they turn on red lights if they did do that? What did night look like? You know, night was a whole thing with us because like uh, water and fire give away scale, two of the most difficult lighting situations I think a DP can be in is night exterior desert and night exterior ocean because those are limitless expanses that if you're lighting them artificially in a natural way there's going to be a point where your lights run out and now suddenly it's not so natural. (laughs) It's tough to kind of wrap your head around those types of expansive night scenes and come up with an approach. So this document was kind of the Bible and I got it all approved. Aaron approved it and visual effects got it and all the producers, everyone approved it. The goal for the film for Tom was 
He wanted to make a World War II film unlike any that he had been in or seen. He wanted it to be very procedural, and he wanted to plop the audience down on the deck of this destroyer and see what it was like to stand next to the captain during a three-day engagement as they crossed this incredibly dangerous stretch of ocean. Tired, dangerous, not entirely sure that what they're doing is the right thing, but they're doing the best they can. And interestingly, with this film, because it's the beginning of the war, you had all of these long-standing officers who were in the Navy that had never seen battle time. And here he's a 24-year veteran in the Navy, had never been to war. So he was just as much a novice as every other young-faced crew member. It was his first crossing, too. And yet he's the captain, and he's the image of authority. And what we wanted to feel in his shots were the story that takes place between this procedural dialogue. The dialogue was, when you read the script, it's all you know, right rudder, 30 degrees, trajectory that, torpedo, you know, sonar this. The real story is sort of in the white part of the script where you interpret everything that that captain is thinking before he's saying it or after he's saying it. There's layers to that. There's layers of that interpretation that I do myself. There's layers that would that expand when I spoke with Aaron about the scenes and then they expanded even further when the actors got involved. So talk about being available to kind of make the shot speak and really deciphering what the scene was about. You really had to be in a headspace for that movie, you know, and here you are again in, in the middle of this special effects movie, but you're 100% of your brain width had to be focused on story. You know, it couldn't have been focused on any of the other 100 things that needed focusing in the special effects and the visual effects side of things, which is a big reason why a lot of that was done up front, you know, because I, I definitely wanted to free my brain up so that I could access the story, you know, because that's the story lived and breathed at the moment. You need to visually renew the language and the landscape of the movie, despite it being a pretty much a one location movie. And I think the success in that comes from the intimate marriage of color and the lens choices to create, as you said, these emotional close-ups. Just to get some technical information out of the way, you use a Panavision DXL. You're shooting on 8K large format with Sphero 65 lenses. By the way, it's my understanding that you didn't even have a chance to test the lenses until the first day on set. <laughs> But luckily you employ, for the majority of us hearing, you employed a 35 and a 40 millimeter, which you used to shoot 75% of the movie with. And again, for an epic battleship story, which it is because it has a lot of action, the movie feels intimate because I think it's through the close-ups of the characters' faces, which are what provide emotion in a film where dialogue is providing information. All of those steps, I tried to keep as creative as possible because every one of them had a contribution. The colorist was just as important as the operators and it was just as important as the manifesto or the concept going in. I mean, I saw the camera very much as a performer in this movie. It was just as important as the actors who were in the scene and had to respond in the same way. You know, the operators had to listen and they had to participate and interact with the, the people in there because the, the pilot house is small. And when I first read the script, I thought, uh, oh, great, this is going to be, you know, like uh, Captain Phillips, that big band of windows, and it's going to be fantastic, and I can do all this light effects, all these different colors, it's going to be great. And, and then I, until I looked up what a Fletcher-class destroyer pilot house looked like, and it's a, a small box that's armored, and it has small portals in it. <laughs> so it was dark and dreary and cold. That got me thinking, okay, there's, a, there's this immense contrast now between the interior and exterior. Fortunately, having that museum ship we did have in Baton Rouge gave us a chance to go on to the actual pilot house because you know, we were obviously shooting a set. But I got to experience the actual pilot house at different times a day, what it felt like, what it smelled like, what the lights were like in there, how dark it was during the day because it's pretty dark. 
And so a lot of artificial lighting in there. We had a lot of incandescent uh, ceiling fixtures and things that, that were in on camera. And so because they're moving through different storm scenarios, they're largely in a storm the whole way across, but varying degrees of weather. I wanted to convey this feeling of a journey. Tom had structured the script based on these four-hour watches. The crews would shift out every four hours. Each one of these shifts could have a different light characteristic to it. A dusk on the first day is very different than a dusk on the second day. And a dawn can be very cyan one day and very blue the next day. And they could be into the storm in the first day and almost light filtering out on the last day. So there could be a change everywhere they went. So even though they're in storm conditions and under fairly soft lighting, I wanted there to be a variation in the depth with which you could see, the clarity of the light, and this extended to the background. So this is why this manifesto was so important. You know, how much of that horizon could you see and how blue was the ambience and was the color of the water very deep and dark and threatening or was it more reflective, reflecting clouds and things like that? You know, all of that was pre-planned and, and sort of preordained. I mean, to the point where they called me in in post to help decipher it all because <laughs> there were shots that the visual effects was doing that, that weren't dropping in. So they asked me to come in and advise and, and I came in and basically just read them the manifesto again. It's okay, in this in this scene, here's what the ocean's supposed to look like, here's what the horizon is. And they're like, oh, okay, oh, okay, I get it, I get it. So now it's going to relate to everything that's happening on the ship because there's subtle little tells. There's reflections and all of the gauges and on the, the metal pieces and on their helmets. There's colors. All of that needs to relate to something that is in the background because the background is supposed to be was lighting it. And so I had to know, in my mind anyway, what was going to be there so that I could help provide that for the far foregrounds. And then with all this, freeing that camera up, here we are again, a special effects situation. The intention was to shoot it all handheld and keep it moving, keep it alive, keep the performance going. The opposite of locking it off, the opposite of favoring what the visual effect would need, building in flaws, building in water on the lenses, letting the lenses steam up. You know, because there was we did have a lot of practical rain and effects on the, the stage. We were all getting extremely wet. And the cameras were getting wet and the lenses would, if we were looking forward and we had, you know, he was talking to the messenger for the period of that scene, the lens would start to fog up. And I thought, let, let it fog up. You know, if we're out in the North Atlantic, that's what it would do. <laughs> you know, let's just keep cleaning it. <laughs> you know. Lost Eagle, Harry and Dickie are low on depth charges and fuel, as are we. They can offer only scant protection to the convoy. We need air cover, Charlie. Do I break radio silence with a message to the Admiralty? But does that let the Wolfpack know just how vulnerable we are? What would the message be? Help needed urgently. Help needed, that means urgently. Needed isn't needed. Just help. That's all the Admiralty needs to hear for a modified rendezvous point. Germans might miss a message as short as that. I wouldn't need to take this risk if I'd been smarter yesterday. What you did yesterday? Got us to today. It's not enough, Charlie. Not nearly enough. A lens fogging effect says something about the environment. When the camera is as desperate to make the shot as the characters are to sink the U-boat, that tells the audience something about the story. It just feeds into this concept of the camera being an active participant. So allow me to ask you a little bit about this and the operating. Quote, camera performance was paramount to me. I wanted to introduce handheld camera, which you mentioned, and that was as important as the natural lighting. From a technical standpoint, study Greyhound for what a good camera operator can do, close quote. It's my understanding that this decision of going handheld came from the fact that going Steadicam would have softened out the rocking ship effect. 
and defeated the purpose of the entire movie. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about the importance of having a great team of camera operators. Why do you think, Shelley, there is value for a cinematographer to delegate operating duties to somebody else? And when do you decide to step in and operate yourself, if ever? Yeah, I rarely operate, and it's not because I don't want to. There's lots of times I'm just dying to. There's a few movies where I have. I did a couple of low-budget movies where I have operated, and it's very fun. What happened with me was on my very first feature, which was in 1986, I decided to use an operator who I met, and it was his first film also. And his name is Don Devine. And he was so good, so amazing. And I, he's been my operator ever since, from my first movie to right up till Greyhound. So he was the camera operator on that. So you're talking about a 34-year... Partnership. Yeah. <laughs> and... Interestingly, though, I didn't really know exactly how we were going to do it. I, I knew that Steadicam and gimbals and things like that were going to equalize some of this motion base out. As you know from Aaron's talk, the motion map and all his calculations on exactly how a ship moves through water is incredibly important. I was familiar with all that movement and the math of it all and how the movement worked. And the last thing I wanted to do was minimize. I mean, if anything, we wanted to accentuate, you know, and so... It became clear to me that handheld was likely the way to go, not even with an easy rig, because on a destroyer, the ceiling is just filled with all kinds of gubbins up there. There's gauges and conduit and ductwork, all kinds of stuff up there. And I didn't want to fly any of that out. I wanted to hide my lights in amongst all that and rarely, if ever, fly the ceiling out. And actually, I never did fly the ceiling out, but the ceiling was low. And so I knew if we had an easy rig in there, which would have been easier for the operators, it probably couldn't have cleared any of that stuff. The size of the camera was a thing. I didn't really fully decide until Don and George Billinger, who is the B camera Steadicam operator, got there. I was sort of afraid to tell them my idea was handheld because I didn't want them to not do the, sh the movie in favor for a much easier one. Because <laughs> basically what I was proposing was hand-holding the entire film, every shot in the movie. When they saw the set, I think they offered it up to me. Uh, so what do you think in handheld? <laughs> I said, yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> I hate to say it, but yep. And so I said, let's just work. I have some light lenses. The, these spheros are small. The camera is not overly big. Let's just get the builds right, and that's how we'll do it. And in the case of Steadicam, one thing that's difficult to do, for instance, handheld is like a lateral move. If Tom is moving left and right and you're in front of him, you're moving left to right with him. That's tough to do on the shoulder without seeing steps and taking it out of the, the ocean going movement into someone walking along trying to sidestep in front of Tom. So George could do that in the Steadicam. That's something you can do in the Steadicam. We could remove enough stuff where you can get George in there. And what I had to tell George was where typically you'd, you'd just barely touch the Steadicam just enough to kind of pan and tilt it. Like, Wrap your hand around that thing. <laughs> Hold it tight. It's supposed to feel handheld. You know, but you have all the advantages of being able to move, do these lateral moves that we need, but but make it, dirty it up. Make it intercut with what Don's doing and all that stuff. And he did. Both these guys were so great and they were so attentive, you know, between takes when Aaron would go in and talk to the actors. The operators were right there in the middle of it, listening to Aaron's notes to them because ultimately what he's telling those actors are the moments we need to suss out. You know, whether it's something Don can do with a camera move or a, a bit of an eye light I need to add to accentuate a moment or whatever it is, we all had to kind of work together and respond to what was happening. So it was very much not entirely like a documentary, but but certainly it's a moving target. 
from take to take, trying to find these moments and make the most of them. And, you know, my golden rule was make every shot speak as loudly as possible. So you're always trying to find ways to make the shot more expressive. And sometimes it's just the smallest little thing, you know, or, or it's just the way he runs in, the way it's kind of shaking and he can, can gain himself. And there's so many intangibles that the operators can give you. And I thought that these operators did an exceptional job at really keying into the performance of the piece. I mean, there's a whole camera performance in that movie that is a huge component in the storytelling, and it's all them. It's them responding the same way an actor would. My last question to you about Greyhound regards this concept of geographical clarity. It's daunting to imagine the heavy lifting this movie has to do. And Aaron was telling me that in order to accurately fake a naval battle in a studio, there's a whole story going on where you need to understand exactly where the enemy ships are, how close, and every shot. You know, between the camera, the actors, and the ships, you're kind of playing this three-dimensional chess. Yeah. Using LED lights, you're creating eye lines and distances and dimensions. I was wondering on a storytelling level, how were you guys keeping track of the action as this game of naval chess was was evolving throughout the story? Well, yeah. It, in prep, we divided our priorities, Aaron and I. In fact, I was in Baton Rouge for six weeks without him. He didn't even come to Baton Rouge until two weeks before we started shooting. So I was sort of his eyes and ears on the ground at Baton Rouge and doing my part of the job, but also working with uh, the production designer on, on what the set is supposed to be. And, you know, Aaron and I getting in sync with, you know, what it was that was being built and some of our preparations and ideas and all that. And he was working on exactly what you're talking about, which is the, the world, because he knew he had to have his plan completely worked out. It was way too complicated. When you start thinking about eye lines, the ship starts turning and these eye lines start moving. All these guys have to look at something. They can't just wing it. It all has to be right. In order for the audience to understand their situation and have empathy for them, that realism and that kind of truth needs to be there. And Aaron talked a lot about that it, it, to the point where even on our interiors, he'd stand on one side of the room and I might stand on the other. And when we got to the end of the rehearsal, he had this wonderful narrative that he had figured out just by reacting to what the actors were doing. None of it written, all there in his directorial mind. And much of the narrative that was there had to also include what was going on outside. So when they ran out the door right to left, they were looking right to left at a submarine that was coming left to right and all that. He was thinking constantly 10 paces ahead on how what they're doing now is going to impact what they're ultimately going to be doing on, on deck and how to give clarity to the audience so the audience isn't stuck on geography because that all had to be invisible and seamless. The story had to follow kind of the emotion out the door, but the geography had to be solid so that it wasn't a distraction. <laughs> it's a thankless job, but one that has to be intact and in place for everything else to work. And Aaron understood that. I mean, he understood it crystal clear. And, and so that was how he spent much of his prep. And so when I finally got him two weeks <laughs> before shooting, it was like, you know, it was fantastic. And he finally started talking about the movie and learning. Now it's time for him to teach me everything he had been doing, because oftentimes the two of us were the only ones that knew what the rest of the frame was going to look like. And uh, frequently the director of the DP are the only ones that know, and particularly on this, on this movie where so much of it just wasn't there, but had to feel like it was. This is the captain. We are running down a target. Let us attend our duties well. This is what we pray for. Martin, what you got? Nothing yet, sir. Got him. Con combat target bearing 092, range 15 miles. 
miles. Charlie, what do you make of this target? Most likely a U-boat, sir. Up for air and a battery charge. Getting ready to come at us, Captain. I just had a quick question about Bell and Ted Face the Music. How did the project evolve on a technical level from the way you thought you were going to photograph it to the way you actually did? With Bill and Ted, that was interesting because I came on to that project as a replacement. The person I replaced was Jerzy Zielinski, who's a wonderful Polish cinematographer. And Jerzy and I met. We did a lighting kind of master class in Warsaw earlier in the year where Jerzy and I were kind of paired together. We were given a director and a script and an American cinematographer shot and a, and a Polish cinematographer shot the exact same scene just to see if, if there are cultural differences <laughs> between the Polish cinematographers and the American cinematographer and all for the benefit of these Polish film students. It was, it was fantastic. Like, I got to know Jerzy and he's been a long time collaborator with Dean Parasol, who is the director. And, and Jerzy shot Galaxy Quest, which is probably Dean's most famous film. He shot all of Dean's films. And Jerzy had to leave. He had a medical issue and he had to go. And he did not want to go and he knew he had to. And so it was actually Jerzy that recommended me to Dean based on this class we did in Warsaw. <laughs> Just because we seemed to get along and and he thought that Dean and I would get along and so uh, Dean called me and hired me on the phone and said okay you're on a plane tomorrow I'll get out here (laughs) by then there were a couple weeks out and so I just dove right in with Dean and Dean was fantastic we sort of had one foot in the comedy door and we tried to have the other foot (laughs) somewhat in the cinematic door it had to work as a comedy you couldn't go totally dramatic with it I felt you know there had to be a a certain nod to what it was and and the Bill and Ted movies are are delightful because there's a certain naivete with how they were made and you didn't want necessarily make a big extravaganza out of Bill and Ted. You want those characters to be accessible and you want you want the audience close to those characters. Interestingly, what we found, we did a uh, typical, what you do in every movie, you do a hair and makeup test with the people and, and all that. You get them all in various wardrobes. And of course, they had different makeup looks because of their, they're in prison at one point. They're really old. They're like in their, their old folks home at another point. And so they had lots of makeup looks. So we're shooting the test. And one thing that Dean and I saw right away was Bill and Ted had to share a frame together. The minute you went in for singles on them, it was like a single of half a person. You know, Bill and Ted are almost like one entity. I felt like anytime they weren't in a two shot, the whole thing just got deflated. So and Dean was like, I've never done a film with all two shots. He goes, yeah, but isn't this, isn't this right? He goes, yes, it's right. It says anytime you do a single, it's like, where's the rest of it? Because <laughs> they, they bounce off each other and play off each other constantly. And I mean, invisibly so. And so the two shots were just marvelous, which automatically now brought our film into kind of a wider perspective. We're not really going in for close-ups, so we're kind of playing things in group shots and two shots, and we decided to shoot widescreen because you can get a two shot there and kind of hold it, and Dean is just such a great director. He knows his way around a comedy scene. I mean, he's essentially directing a drama. He goes for all the drama beats, and he's so good with the actors and so positive to be around, and I can see he just loved Yerji and really missed him. I was definitely filling a void there. As a DP, you're conscious of that. I'm replacing somebody who has a 30-year relationship with this director who, who that is still ongoing. It's not, this was a temporary thing. So it's not like Yerji was out. Yerji was is very much Dean's partner in crime. So I had to really respect that. And, and Yerji left me all his notes. I mean, he literally left one night and I was there the next morning. So he just left his notebooks and everything on his desk. So I got to see everything he was planning. So I got, to, it, was, it was wonderful to get into another DP's mind and see, oh, here's what he's planning for the end of the film. This is interesting. <laughs> Look at this little drawing he did. This is so funny. It was it was great to get a view of his process. Bill, we've spent our whole life trying to unite the world. And I'm tired, dude. Ted, we have a destiny to fulfill. Whoa. 
Greetings, my excellent friends. We have a problem. A song created by Preston Logan performed tonight will save reality as we know it. Oh, dude, we better write that song now. Or why can't we just go to the future when we have written it? Take it from ourselves. Except, won't that be stealing? Cheers! <laughs> How is that stealing? If we're stealing it from ourselves, dude. We didn't really have time today to talk about Wolfman, and I would love to ask you about that, but I'm seeing a pattern. You mentioned this was a film where you literally had just a couple weeks before starting. I know Wolfman in 2010 was a similar situation. Yeah, it was. In those kind of scenarios, do you have to rely more on your instincts? You got to hit the ground running and you just got to go no matter what. How does that process differ to having six months of prep? There's two things that are happening at once, because you're right, Wolfman was kind of the same time frame. In that case, Joe Johnston directed that. He replaced another director. He had three weeks prep, and I, by the time I got there, I had two weeks. There's two things. You want to try to click in thematically and narratively as fast as you can and start making meaningful narrative choices. At the same time, you sort of need to get the ball rolling. That last two weeks is a pretty active time in terms of pre-rigging. Like Bill and Ted was the same way. I had to get the crew going on doing some things. And because there's very little time, you sort of have to kind of do it according to, well, what's, what's first up on the schedule? I have to start working there. At least start giving them things that they can start to do because they they basically started the same day I did and we were just hi how are you <laughs> you know because I, I just I just inherited Yurji's crew and in the case of uh, of Wolfman I inherited the gaffer Biggles was already on it but then I hired everybody else so I had to hire some people and the crew was enormously helpful I think in the situations I've been with that two week thing that when you're starting a movie the crew really steps up they empathize with what the DP is going through and they. They work a little extra hard, I think, to, to really help the situation. And, and every time I've been in that situation, I've had that, which is great. And it makes it easier for me to click into that narrative. And in the case of Wolfman, what did it for me was the hair and makeup test, because we did that, whatever, like on my third day. <laughs> I was there. It's like hair and makeup test, okay. And so one of the sets was kind of done. And so we shot it there. And I lit this and I decided, okay, this is going to be the hair and makeup test that's going to be the moodiest hair and makeup test you ever saw. Because <laughs> I need some feedback. I need to get a reaction. You know, I'm not just going to light this in a safe way. I'm going to really test out some looks here. And I did. We tested out all kinds of different things and really made things dark and could kind of see what the wardrobe was going to be doing. But mostly what I got was I could see from the dailies, it was on film, so that we saw on dailies the next day, I could see when I was making the producers nervous, when their nervousness made Joe very happy, you know. <laughs> So I can kind of see, you know, where, where things wanted to go, gravitate in a natural way, because obviously things were going to get moody. Uh, like in a case like the Wolfman, you, you're you're definitely creating a world, and that unlike you know Jurassic, that world is fantastically impressionistic and has nothing to do with reality. It's all about feeling, and it's all about creating an expression, you know, for the audience. So that I just dove head first, and that's part of the reason why I did those makeup and hair tests the way I did them was just to also communicate to them, you know, I'm. I'm not fooling around. I'm I'm here to to do something pronounced. I'm not going to play it safe. I'm going to I'm going to kind of go for it here. You know, interestingly, just on my way to the airport, I got a phone call leaving for London and it was and it was uh from the head of Universal Studios. I'd never gotten this call before and she said, "Shelley, I just want you to know we want this movie to be moody." And I was like, "Oh, wow." <laughs> do you know how long I've waited for a studio head to tell me that? <laughs> Nor normally it's the opposite. It's like, you know, dark but not too dark. <laughs> careful <laughs> so i that was an invitation you know to me when i when uh, 
when I got that call. The last project I want to ask you about is Shrunk, which, as we said, is, is a reboot or a sequel of the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids franchise. The specificity of this movie is that characters are a quarter of an inch tall, which forces all department heads to collaborate even more than on a regular film. And I was wondering, obviously the film hasn't started shooting. Yeah. And given the fact that Joe directed the original back in 89, I thought it would be interesting to ask Shelley, what visual elements of this multi-generational story of the Zelensky family can you tap into now that simply wouldn't have been possible 31 years ago. <laughs> One of the things that uh, Joe was pushing, he, he was very careful to point out that most everything that they come into contact with is handmade. It's a homemade item. So it's not very high tech. This story follows the, the youngest son who is now grown up and their kids get shrunk when they come into possession of uh, a device that the father has made. What the collaboration between departments really means is you start to see when you really start to appreciate what being a quarter inch tall means. There's a big difference between doing a being one inch tall. I, I did the live action scenes from the Lego movie, the second Lego movie, and those those characters were about an inch tall. And we could run around and we could you know do plates on the floor and where they'd be running behind them and things like that. Being a quarter inch tall, I mean, when you consider when a lens is three inches in diameter and the lens sees off the center of the lens. If you've got a character now that's a quarter inch tall, you're already 30 feet above them. <laughs> that has a very real effect when you really start thinking about it. And one of the things I was working out was how we could artificially lower the camera because obviously to get a lens down to a quarter inch, you need a quarter inch diameter lens, you know, which doesn't really exist for cinema anyway. So we have to think of ways to do it. And so I was doing these tests on how we could kind of warp our foregrounds and, you know, shoot plates to, you know, not only get the camera lower, but also exaggerate, you know, the keystoning and everything that would happen, which kind of went hand in hand with what visual effects was designing and goes hand in hand with what the designer is, is figuring out. And yeah, we worked for what a couple of weeks in Atlanta, which is where we're going to shoot it. It got held up with COVID and it might not even shoot now until the beginning of next year. It may not even be in Atlanta. So it's a lot's going to happen to Trump in the next five months, I think. But um, what we have so far is actually kind of a really interesting plan on how to get them into these environments and exactly how to shoot it. You know, it's not a bottomless pit of money. So we have to come up with economical ways to do things. But the fact that everything's homemade, Joe is kind of saying, think that way also. Home make something. Get some creative solutions going to some of these problems. Not everything has to be a computer effect. In fact, he prefers it. And he was saying, even in the first movie, everything's practical. There's no computer effect. You know, it's, it's all practical. That was done a long time ago. So he said, think about you know the light and how they're going to be moving from spaces and, and what we can do. At one point, they fly around in kind of this mechanical bee, you know, this little drone bee thing. The, the invention was to kind of use to pollinate flowers, have little drone bees that you could pollinate flowers with. But they jump on one and kind of fly around in it. And so we have to get all those plates. So I'm experimenting with these little micro drones and first-person view racing drones. They could fly under under benches and you know, through. so I have these crazy drone people that are that are helping me. So there's been a lot kind of activated and a lot of ideas. We're very much in the crazy idea stage. The realm of reality has not reared its head yet, but it's about to. And uh, when it does, that's when we have to start economizing. But I think it's important to go through this stage that we're in now because it at least clarifies your intent. You know exactly what you need to leave that scene with, what it needs to look like, what it needs to feel like mostly. And so there's 
you know, you don't always have to do it in the most expensive way. There's a lot of ways you can do that, but at least we know thematically kind of what we need. That's what's so great about working with Joe. And we were able to do about two weeks of Zoom meetings, which we, we met every day with everybody, the whole core group there. And what was really good was that Joe was drawing his own storyboards. Normally he draws little thumbnails and then gives those thumbnails to a board artist and then they draw these really nice storyboards. Well, this time we got to see the thumbnails <laughs> and the thumbnails are fantastic because there's not a wasted line. He has these very simple boards, but I mean, but I mean, they're really put together nicely and you can really see the sequence and see what he's thinking. And it's so great to be able to talk to him and this early in the game and to get into his head about what things are, are doing. In fact, there was even one sequence where where the boards kind of float in such a way where I say, hey, Joe, do we want to consider doing like whatever it is, like frame, between frame 70 and 150, doing that all as one shot, and <laughs> basically connecting these boards as one shot. And, and it's like, oh, yeah, this whole thing can flow that way. So we're going to be doing little things like that. That can be, uh, you know, kind of an identifier for the movie. I want to begin wrapping things up, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about the relationship with the cinematographers who inspire you. We talked about Alan Davio what has your relationship been with his cinematography work? And in what ways do you think his approach finds his way back and is reintroduced through the choices you make? Oh, I've known Alan, or knew Alan for a very long time. I met him when I was 18. So what is that? That's, well, that's 45 years of knowing God, knowing him. It's a long time. And, and uh, I got, really got to see him change. When I met him, it was the pre-ET Alan. He was shooting biscuit commercials. <laughs> For our film department chairman, I went to Art Center College, and so our film department chairman was a guy named Jim Jordan, who was a commercial director. And so he hired either Alan or John Hora to shoot his commercials. And I would kind of talk my way onto the sets just to observe, just to be on a set and see how a set worked, how to light a set and all that. And they had a little stage at this production company where he was. So a lot of their stuff was on stage, and Alan would be there all the time. And Alan was a very nice guy. He'd see an 18-year-old stand there and go, what are you doing here? You want to be a cinematographer? Yeah, well, come over here. <laughs> Let me talk to you. <laughs> you, know, it's like, you know, and he would, you know, kind of get to it. What have you done? And, oh, can I see? He wanted to see some stuff. He'd think, would you, would you let me see some footage? I said, yeah, sure. So I would show him my student films and, you know, whenever he asked. Or if I, there was one that was particularly good, I'd give him a call. And I know at one point that, you know, we were able to drive him out to the house and show him the film on the wall. Because he came out and, and this was after E.T., so he was actually kind of getting famous. But he was the same Alan. And what was great about him was you would just get these little pearls of wisdom. He would just have a way, an eloquent way of saying something that would change the way you looked at, at a scene or change the way you looked at cinematography in general. One of my favorite quotes of his is, is uh, he really felt like his job as a cinematographer was to make the silent portions of the film speak as loudly as the words, which he certainly did. When you look at his films, his films consistently do that. He did something that I think it's good for every cinematographer to do, which is he created an on-screen persona for himself. You look at his films and only he could have shot them. It's like when you look at Roger Deakins' films, you can tell, oh, well, Roger Deakins shot that. He has such ownership of the image and such a mastery of the art and the craft side of it. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he mixed them 50-50. When your, your conversations with Alan, he would talk about his reasons why. And then he'd talk about light point values and printer trends and chemistry solutions and things. You know, he'd, he'd get into the whole thing. I mean, the whole package. He was uh, mostly, I think, a, a good example of what a good cinematographer should be. 
as a person and as an artist and, and everything else. And so when you know a person like that for a long time, that's the kind of stuff that rubs off. And it's not so much you want to be like him, but I, I would love it if somebody would think about me and anywhere close to the, that way. That would mean I'm doing something right. Certainly gives me something to aspire to in terms of creating my own persona and helping people, speaking well about, about cinematography to get people excited about it. He was extremely humble. He didn't sit there and talk about himself much. And, you know, keep in mind, when I went to his house to view Congo, a lot of that conversation was him pointing to what he felt didn't work. <laughs> you know, he was not there to toot his own horn at all and never did. He was, he was very, very humble and just wanted to tell stories and wanted to, to excite people and excite audiences. And, you know, I think if a mentor or a teacher can do that for you, that's much more than, than teaching the math of it all. You know, that f-stops and camera settings... Even lighting can be learned, you know, but that kind of stuff has to be evolved. It has to be grown. You have to grow into the, that person. When I was young, I maybe thought I was getting close to being that person. Now that I'm older, I could see when I was younger, I was nowhere near that person, you know. You have to kind of feel things in your own way, kind of create your own presence as a cinematographer to the point where that contribution is a, a total necessity for the film. My last question regards your legacy. What has the conversation been like with yourself? in regards to all the amazing work you have produced and the work you're still looking to produce? I don't really look at my films with much admiration. I kind of look at them in ways where I, I think, oh, gee, I could have improved on that. You know, and, and when I look at Jurassic, I think, oh, I could have gotten much more moodier in that uh, in that jungle. The whole thing should just be a lot more, a lot more down and moody. If I had a chance to do that again, I'd do that. I, I don't really spend a lot of time learning from what I've done other than learning from my mistakes, I think. <laughs> Because you always want to be better. And I think part of it is you have goals going in. You have these thematic and narrative goals when you're making a movie. Sometimes you hit them and sometimes you don't. And if you don't hit them, you kind of think, wow, next time I really need to, I need to do better. I need to, I need to hit this stuff better. In that respect, you never stop learning. And I think as a cinematographer, technically, certainly you never stop learning because things are always changing, be it from incandescent LED lighting, from film to digital, and, and it's ongoing. In fact, even in the run of a movie, if I'm on a movie six months, by the time I end that movie, I'm now six months behind <laughs> on all the new products that just came out. You know, so I have to catch up. And it happens narratively. You want to get better. And I think as you get older, your storytelling goals evolve into things that are a lot more based on thought and feeling more than just a tickle you would get from seeing a, a move. You want, you want the work to connect with an audience on a much more soulful level. So that pursuit always seems to be a new pursuit as well. You're, you're trying to redefine you know, the work and, and how to connect with an audience uh, in a new way. It's not frustrating, but it's a pursuit. And I'm thankful. I'm, I'm so glad to do it. It's really fun. The, the job itself is fun. And the camaraderie with the crew and the directors, are, it's really fun. And it's a privileged place to be. And there's never a point where I don't feel like I'm, I'm jaded about it. I'm always thankful about every job I get. Even the kind of weird, punky ones are always, there's always something to learn there, you know. But that pursuit is always something that'll just be ongoing. I don't think I'll ever get to the end of that road, you know. Shelly, you have been so generous with your time. I truly can't thank you enough. Thank you. And I wish you all the best. Greyhound is now on Apple Plus. Uh, Bill and Ted is coming out. <laughs> There's no excuse not to follow your work. So thank you for everything you've shared. I learned so much in a single conversation. Oh my God, are you kidding? This is the best prepped interview I've ever had. No, you really did your, I, I don't even know where you pulled half those quotes. It's like, it's like where, when did I say that? <laughs> Thank you.
And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Shelly for calling in and for being so generous with this time. And to Eric for doing the final mix on all of these episodes. Bill and Ted Face the Music is now in theaters and digital, with Shelley's next film, Honest Thief, with Liam Neeson, being released later this year. If you enjoyed this program, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter for early reveals of who the next show guests will be. Please help us by taking a moment to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners discover the show. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access. <laughs>